Good morning, church. So we, we come to our next section in the book of Mark. Um, you know, we've, we've come from a section where people have, we've seen two individuals who've exhibited great faith. Um, the woman who was bleeding and Jairus as he's pleading with Jesus that he would heal his daughter. But today we come to an entirely different section, has a very different tone within the narrative so far. One of the ways that we evaluate great men is by looking at those closest to them, looking at what those closest to them thought about them or think about him. The man's wife, his children, his close relatives, people who know him best, those who grew up with him and remember him when, those who have access to his private life. We tend to think that those closest to a person or those who knew, them, knew him before he was someone will be able to give a better estimate of his character. And ordinarily, that would be true. When it comes to Christ, if you came to him at a certain point in his public ministry and you ask those questions, you might be shocked to find that those closest to him despised him. They thought very little of him. We know from Mark 3 that those who knew him way back when thought he was insane. They did not believe in him. The scripture reveals that that is in no way a fault of Jesus or would in any way cast aspersion on him. The text we're going to study today gives us a glimpse into that. One of the reasons we might give for why it was that his own relatives, people in his own house, people that watched him grow up, did not believe him. One of the answers that we might give is the old slogan or statement, familiarity breeds contempt. What does that mean? The more you know of someone, you have access to their private life, their physical life, the more you may be tempted to despise them, to belittle them, or to think lowly of them. That's what despise means. It's not to hate them, but you think very lowly of them. Familiarity breeds contempt. This tendency can cause trouble at many levels of human experience. It can happen in marriage. Little by little, spouses can lose esteem for each other when they live life together day after day, year after year. Children can lose respect for their parents in the same way. As they get older, they see their parents' feet of clay, the way they struggle with sin, some of their habits, their sin patterns, even their physical weaknesses. They get older. They get sick. They begin to fall apart physically. There may be some disdaining that creeps in. While this tendency familiarity breeds contempt can be damaging in many human relationships. There's no case in which it's so dangerous as the case of Jesus of Nazareth. In our account today, the people who watched Jesus grow up from boyhood into young manhood, who knew his parents and his family, who watched him begin his trade as a carpenter, who maybe never saw any open indications of supernatural greatness, were secretly despising him now that his public ministry was in full swing. The text says they took offense at him. That is, they stumbled over him, especially his outrageous claim to be God in the flesh. 
they could not believe in him because of this contempt. To paraphrase Nathaniel in John chapter 1, nothing good can come from Nazareth. So who is this Jesus to think that he has risen beyond his station? This very condition was prophesied six centuries before Jesus was even born by the prophet Isaiah, who wrote, Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before them like a young, like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had not former majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Isaiah spoke of the fundamental challenge of believing the central message, the truth, the truth about Jesus of Nazareth, that he is God in the flesh, the Savior of the world. The problem Isaiah lifts up there is his outer appearance the humble circumstances of his physical life, the fact that he grew up before them like a tender shoot and like a root out of the dry ground. Jesus growing up in Nazareth before the onlooking eyes of his neighbors was in the most ordinary way like any other person. Physically, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. The outer appearance of Jesus, Isaiah said, is the problem. He looked like any other man. The outer appearance kept them from seeing his true nature, his true glory as God. Thus, they despised and rejected him. The only possible rem remedy to this, Isaiah said, was faith. Before faith must come the sovereign work of revelation. Revelation, as Isaiah said right from the beginning, who has believed what he heard from us? That's a matter of faith. Who has believed what he's heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? You see the combination. Who has believed? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord represents his true power, his saving power. It's hidden. The arm of the Lord is hidden, and it must be revealed. If it is revealed, people may believe in it. That's the connection. Everything comes down then to this miracle of revelation. What is that? We could go over to the book of Revelation, the apocalypse. The apocalypsis means the unveiling. Both the Greek word and the English word are connected to that concept of unveiling, a pulling back of the veil. The book of Revelation is that. It is an unveiling, but of what? Well, not only of the revelation of the future, as most people think it to be, it is that. Of all the worship that goes on there constantly, it is that. Not only a revelation of the destruction of Satan and his evil forces, it is that. Not only a revelation of the judgment day and the eternity beyond, both the lake of fire and heaven, it is that. It is all of these. But it is infinitely more than that. It is, as Revelation says right from the beginning, the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what it is, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. The question is, why does Christ need to be unveiled? What hid him from our eyes? Was it not the humility of his lowly incarnation? At Christmas time, we sing Charles Wesley's hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. It goes, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. 
hail the incarnate deity. Kind of gets to it, doesn't it? Veiled in flesh. That is what we're studying today. The eternal glory of Christ veiled in the incarnation. Only the eye of faith could pierce this veil and see the glory of God behind it. As we see, and we see how in the previous passages that faith has partially pierced that veil of flesh. Up to this point in Mark, we've seen ten different miracles of Christ. We've seen the healing of Peter's mother-in-law, many more in Capernaum. We've seen him heal a leper, a paralyzed man, a man with a deformed hand, many more again. We've seen him calm the storm in the sea. We've seen him cast out a legion of demons. We've seen him heal a woman with a bleeding disorder, and we've seen him raise Jairus' daughter from the dead. And while some of these Jesus does to simply demonstrate his own power and mercy, many of these miracles have been in response to belief, the faith of the, faith of the person or those acting on the person's behalf that move Jesus to, to respond in a miraculous way. In the face of belief, Jesus was moved to action. What about in the face of unbelief? It's tempting to think that in the face of unbelief, Jesus would have performed more miracles because certainly they don't believe because they don't see. And if they only saw, surely they would believe then. But this is not what we see in the text. Turn with me now to Mark chapter 6. And it begins. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about teaching among the villages. Or he, went, he went about among the villages teaching. Thus far in the text of Mark, we see the author establishing Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah. Jesus demonstrates his authority and power over illness, sin, and last week, even death itself. We also see a pattern emerge. Jesus performs a multitude of mighty works, but not as the ends in themselves. We don't see Jesus performing miracles in the face of unbelief so that people might believe. Rather, we see Jesus perform miracles to confirm his teaching, to confirm that he has the authority to make the claims that he's making. 
What we see here is something very different than what we've seen in Mark thus far. What we've seen so far is general enthusiasm for Jesus and his mighty works with some pockets of opposition, namely from the scribes. However, lest we forget that there was another group of people opposing Jesus, remember a previous text in Mark chapter 3.20. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he's out of his mind. In this text, those familiar with Jesus and his family show up. At the outset of the text, Jesus returns to Nazareth for the first time since the beginning of his ministry. This was no social visit. His disciples were with him, and with Jesus, class is always in session. While we might expect a hero's welcome because the hometown boys made good, yet we see exactly the opposite. Right from the get-go, we see confusion and bewilderment. It doesn't get better from here. The text rapidly moves from bewilderment to unbelief. Lest we're tempted to say, maybe, maybe they just doubt. Maybe it's there a little, but they're just having some trouble. As tempting as that is, that isn't borne out by Scripture. Doubt is a questioning of what one believes to be true. In order to doubt, must, one must have some modicum of faith. When Jesus calls Peter out to him on the water in Matthew 14, Peter steps out, but he quickly stumbles. Jesus' response to Peter is, is telling, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt me? We see Peter's faith, faith falter. We don't see an absence of faith. Doubt is a condition that only a believer can experience. What we see here is something very different. What we see here is unbelief. Unbelief is the condition of the unbeliever. Unbelief says, I hear what you're saying, and I choose not to believe it. I reject what you're saying altogether. After Jesus arrives in Nazareth, he begins to teach in the synagogue. Teaching in the synagogue was an honor bestowed by the priest. Not just anyone could walk in and begin teaching. One had to be asked to teach. Keep in mind that throughout Mark, the scribes of the Pharisees have been a constant enemy of Jesus, even going so far as to claim that Jesus was performing the work of Satan himself. And yet this agent of Satan was asked to teach in the synagogue. Maybe their motives weren't so pure. Maybe something more sinister is afoot. Maybe there's some deeper opposition. Nonetheless, Jesus does not turn down the opportunity to teach the message, repent and believe in the gospel, the same message that he's been teaching through the entire text. The response of the people who heard was astonishment. But these were not any people. These were Jesus' people. The people who knew Jesus' family. Who knew Jesus before his ministry when he was just a carpenter. The people who knew the scandal of his birth. Some of the people there were Jesus' earthly family. 
The word for astonishment doesn't necessarily convey amazement, although it can, but rather amazement at what we're seeing, but also a certain bewilderment, a confusion. The word communicates the extraordinary nature of the teaching, but also that they failed to recognize the origin of such teaching. In response to this astonishment, the crowd asks a series of five questions that reveal the characteristics of their unbelief, and we see Jesus' response to their unbelief. We see that the crowd asks a series of questions that it ignores the obvious, it focuses on the irrelevant and easily offended. What we see is that unbelief ignores the obvious. In response to their astonishment, the crowd asks three questions. Where did this man get these things? The things to which the crowd is referring is his teaching. The crowd has already recognized that what Jesus was teaching was unusual, but they also recognize back in Mark 1 at the beginning of his ministry that what he's teaching is authoritative. And yet, they show that they don't understand where this authority is coming from. In a culture in which your class and who you are is largely fixed and dependent on who your parents were, especially who your father is, which comes into play later, that this man could be teaching these things as if he had the authority to do so must have seemed to be a bizarre sight indeed. But they didn't stop there. They asked two more questions. What is the wisdom given to him, and how are such mighty works done by his hands? The crowd recognized that Jesus spoke with unusual wisdom and that he performed mighty works. And previous sections of Mark indicate that Jesus' fame, and particularly his miracles, had spread throughout Galilee. Certainly they must have reached the ear of his hometown. We should also note that the, that the questions that they've asked have an assumed answer. Obviously these things were given to this man by God. In many ways, the questions of the crowd hearken back to the, to the prophecy of Isaiah in, chap, in Isaiah chapter 11. They ask the question, where did this man get these things? Well, we see in Isaiah 11 where it says, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The answer to their question is in the prophecy. What is the wisdom given to him? The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The prophecy about the coming Messiah answers their question. The spirit of counsel and might. How are such mighty works done by his hands? The spirit of counsel and might. And Isaiah finishes, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. They ask these questions. Questions that any man who knew the prophet Isaiah 
already knew those questions had been answered. Where does this man get these things? He's the Messiah. And yet, they ask this question in bewilderment. Where did he get these things? We don't know. Their unbelief ignores the obvious. We must note here that what the, crowd, what the crowd does not do, and what they don't do is almost as important as what they do. Unlike the scribes from Jerusalem in Mark 3.22, the crowd did not declare him to be in league with Satan. Unlike his family in the verse prior to that, they didn't declare him to be a lunatic. While the, while the crowd would not do those things, they did not acknowledge what should have been supremely obvious to them. What the prophet Isaiah had already declared. They would not declare him Lord. They recognized the wisdom and understanding and counsel and might. They had the prophecy of Isaiah declaring that the long-awaited Messiah would exhibit these things, a prophecy that was being fulfilled in their presence. And while they recognized the power and the wisdom of their God, they failed to recognize their Messiah. C.S. Lewis, in his classic work, Mere Christianity, put it rather succinctly when he wrote, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing that we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall flat at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. What we see here, they didn't call him, they didn't declare him to be in league with Satan. They didn't declare him to be a lunatic. But in their unbelief, they ignored the obvious. And they would not say he's their Messiah. Like the hard soil in Mark 4, as their hearts were hard. They had been given more than enough evidence to believe. But in their unbelief, the people of Nazareth ignored the obvious that they were standing in the presence of their long-awaited Messiah. The tone of the text starts to change rapidly and, and maybe even unexpectedly. They ask these, these first three questions. Where did this man get these things? Where did he get this wisdom? How are such mighty things done by his hand? that all have the assumed answer, well, 
these things are from God. We won't declare him Messiah, but we recognize these things are of God. But now the tone of the questions changes to irrelevant smokescreens. It's almost as if just about when the crowd is a bit about to make the connection, they say, but wait a minute here. As the unbelief of the crowd seemingly grows in front of our eyes, we're confronted by their final two questions. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters with us? Is not this the carpenter? The first stop that the crowd makes is to impugn Jesus' occupation. Like Joseph, Jesus was a tradesman. He worked with his hands. The construction of the underlying, underlying Greek focuses not so much on the work that he's doing, but the position of a tradesman within the community. While tradesmen were certainly a critical part of the community because of his handicraft, it was still a lowly profession. The, the implication being, you're a carpenter, buddy. Just stick to woodworking. Leave the hard stuff like thinking to the professionals. This quickly turns into, he's just a carpenter. Who cares what he's saying? We know that our Messiah will be a king, not a carpenter. Let's move on. And so they do. As if the impugnation couldn't have gotten lower, it did. Is not this the son of Mary? The designation of a son as the child of his mother is highly unusual in Jewish culture. A man would have been recognized and referred to as the son of his father. He would always be referred to as his father's son, even long after his father's death. There are some, some commentators that look at this and they say, well, maybe, maybe Joseph had been long dead at this point. Maybe Joseph wasn't in the picture anymore. He had long since died. So we're, but Mary's here. So Mary, this is Mary's son. So we'll just say he's Mary's son because Joseph is dead. And that sounds nice, except that that's not what was done. We know that a man is always referred to as his father's son. Instead, they call him the son of his mother. This was done when the father's identity was unknown or the mother was a prostitute. It's as if to say, Jesus, we know our father. Do you know yours? It's also an attack against Jesus' mother. It declares her to be a woman of loose morals. It's as if to say, see, this man was born into bastardy. His mother was a prostitute and his father must have been a scamp to visit her. This can't be the Messiah. How can this be the shoot from the stump of Jesse? We, know who, we don't know who his father is. He doesn't know who his father is. Move on. There's nothing to say, nothing to see here. As if 
declaring Jesus to be uneducated and illegitimate wasn't enough, the crowd reminds itself that his family's here with him, with them. This is the same family that back in Mark tried to seize him because they believed that he was a lunatic. Why should we listen to this powerful message of truth and wisdom? Notice they're not changing their opinion of this is great wisdom and this is great teaching and this is authoritative. They're not denying that here. But this is a smokescreen. Why should we listen to this powerful message of truth and wisdom? His own family thinks he's lost his mind. Note they don't call him a lunatic. But this serves as a convenient reason to disregard him. Determined unbelief focuses on the irrelevant to remain in its unbelief. And we see that with the crowd here. They don't deny his message. They don't deny the great truth and the great wisdom and the power that they've seen Jesus exhibit. But they focus on his lowly origins, the scandal of his birth, and the opinion of his family to say, nah, we don't believe a word you're saying, buddy. The conclusion of the crowd's questioning is that they took offense at him. The Greek word here is scandalon, meaning a stumbling block. Literally, they were scandalized by Jesus. Yes, we recognize that you have great wisdom and might. That much is undeniable. We even recognize that it's from God. For some reason, he has shown you his favor. But you're a bastard carpenter who thinks he's crazy. You, sir, are not the Messiah. They could not get past Jesus' origins. This rejection is foretold in Isaiah 53 when it says that Jesus had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. He would be despised and rejected by men. The unbelief of the crowd looked into anything to maintain their unbelief, his occupation, his parentage, his family. Because Jesus did not look like what they wanted their Messiah to look like, they rejected him. And in their determined unbelief, the crowd was easily offended. In the second half of our text, we see Jesus' response to their unbelief. We see two responses. We see both encouragement, but we also see mercy. Which seem, both of which seem kind of odd in the face of determined unbelief. Jesus concludes his questioning with the statement, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And we know the truth of this statement. We can look back throughout the Old Testament and it's rife with the stories of the prophets of God being rejected, but not just rejected, being murdered. In fact, in one of Jesus' woes toward the, toward the Jewish people, he talks about how they treated the prophets. 
they were rejected and murdered. Ironically, in returning to his hometown, Jesus was returning to the place where there would be the most resistance to his message. Jesus' statement is a statement of that truth. But so that we don't forget, Jesus isn't here alone. The disciples came with him during this episode. They're watching this unfold in front of him. They've just traveled with him. They've watched Jesus perform great deeds, casting out demons, healing the sick, raising the dead. And they're going to Jesus' hometown. They may have been expecting that his word of Jesus spread, that his hometown would be looking to claim him as their own, that something good has finally come out of Nazareth. And yet, precisely the opposite happened. It might be enough to cause them to doubt. I believe that Jesus' statement is an encouragement to the disciples who are with him, that in the face of such rejection, remember the prophets. While Jesus was no mere prophet, we know that he would share the same fate as the prophets. The rejection of the prophets did not change the truth of their message. They dishonored the prophets, even killed them, which only served to increase the judgment that was due. But that does not change the reality that they were sent from God. Nazareth's rejection of Jesus does not change the fact that he is the Messiah. It's as if he's telling the disciples, don't be surprised by this. They rejected the prophets. They will reject me. And if they reject me, they'll reject you who are following me. But don't be discouraged. Teach the truth. We see this as an, I see this as an encouragement to those who are with him. But we also see Jesus extend mercy to those who reject him. Jesus' other response to unbelief was that he could not do mighty works there. I want to state at the outset that this is not to say that we can thwart the will of God. He is the omnipotent creator of the universe. Conversely, we should not fall into the trap that because we believe that God will do whatever miracle we ask him to. When the unbelieving Pharisees demanded a sign, and we'll see this coming up in a few weeks in Mark chapter 8, Jesus' response was, no sign will be given this generation. Throughout Mark, Jesus' miracles serve to confirm the authority of Of his message. The problem here is not that they were unaware of his authority. They knew his authority and they rejected him anyway. The people's unbelief, that determined refusal to believe, impacted what Jesus did and did not do among them. Is this telling us that Jesus was unable or unwilling to do miracles among them? Is this saying that even if Jesus wanted to do miracles, that he couldn't because of their unbelief? Is this what verse 5 is actually saying? If this is the case, then Jesus is not all-powerful. But that's not the case. 
In response to the people's unbelief, Jesus chose not to do any miracles in Nazareth, with the exception of a few healings. The issue is not that he lacked the supernatural power to perform miracles. Rather, there was no reason to do miracles there, since the purpose of his miracles was to confirm the truth and reveal himself as the Lord and Messiah and to lead sinners to saving faith. Because the people of Nazareth had already set their rejection in stone, the miracles were unnecessary. Listen carefully. Jesus does not need your faith to perform miracles. Jesus can heal the sick, cast out demons, walk on water, and raise the dead without anybody believing. He is God in the flesh. He is all-powerful. Jesus is not dependent on people's faith to perform miracles. One theologian wrote of this verse that Jesus' miracles were not magic tricks designed to prove how powerful he was, but they're signs of the kingdom to show how his redemptive power operates. His miracles always healed and restored and delivered people in ways that revealed how we are to find him by faith and have our lives transformed by him. He could not do a deed that would not redeem. To enter into the kingdom of God and experience its power, however, one must repent and believe. Jesus' response to the unbelief of the Nazarenes was one of amazement. The primary point here is that those who should have been most receptive to Jesus' proclamation were the ones most resistant to it. While it's tempting to view this passage as a nod to Jesus' humanity, we must remember that this rejection did not catch Jesus off guard. Rather, we're rapidly approaching the point in the text where the narrative starts to take a rapid and decided change. Thus far, we've generally seen the people enthusiastically seeking him out. Moving forward, we'll begin to see more and more rejection. And as the rejection increases, the number of miracles in the text rapidly decrease. Jesus' response to the belief of the Nazarenes is one of mercy. Yes, mercy. It was mercy to the Nazarenes that Jesus did not perform miracles among them. It is easy to see Jesus performing a miracle as a mercy. You know, Jesus healed this person of their sickness or or their paralysis, or, or some other great and mighty deed. Yes, that Jesus showed them mercy. But Jesus not performing a miracle is mercy? We see in another gospel in John, where the Jews demand to know if Jesus is the Messiah, he responds, I told you and you did not believe. The works I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Their belief in the face of all Jesus' works performed in their presence stood as a witness against them. We see in another, another text over in Matthew where Jesus is pronouncing woe on the unrepentant cities. He says, Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago 
in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon and for you. And for you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained. But I tell you that it would be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Their unbelief in the face of the miracles stood as a judgment against them. It would be more tolerable for Sodom than it would be for Capernaum because Capernaum had the miracles. It would be more tolerable for Sodom because they at least didn't have the miracles. But if the miracles had been done there, they would have repented. They would have still been here. In the face of determined unbelief, Jesus' refusal to perform the miracles is a mercy to them. That their judgment would not be that of Capernaum. The withholding the withholding of miracles was the mercy that even in the face of utter rejection, Jesus' response to them is still one of mercy. So what do we do with this? What's here for us today? It's not easy to see how a passage about unbelief in the Messiah that we profess should apply to us. But it is scripture, so there is truth that is applicable to our lives. Jesus' lack of miracles is not the end of the passage. At the end of verse 6, we're told, and he went about among the villages teaching. Jesus continued to preach, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. The Nazarenes rejected Jesus, but this did not stop him from preaching the gospel of God. Jesus knew this, that this was the beginning of the dark cloud of rejection that would ultimately culminate at the cross. And even in the face of that ultimate rejection, Jesus' response was still, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He continued teaching. In the face of rejection, he continued teaching. This didn't discourage him. This didn't dissuade him from preaching the truth, the gospel of repentance that he was sent to preach and ultimately to bring to pass. He continued teaching. If the world rejected Jesus, it will certainly reject those who follow him. In the face of rejection, we must hold fast to the gospel that we've been given. The great scandal of belief is that faith looks nothing like anything that makes sense. 
The first shall be last and the last shall be first. He who would save his life must lose it. The coming king was born in a manger. The one with authority was a carpenter. We must hold fast to the truth of the gospel. Otherwise, these will become a scandal to us as well. If we, like Peter, take our eyes off Jesus, we will quickly lose our way and become like those who do not believe. We cannot do this alone. Belief is not something that we devise of our own will and desire. Faith runs counter to everything about our fallenness. We are commanded to put to death what is earthly in us. These stem from sin and unbelief. We must cry the cry of the Father in Mark 9. I believe, help my unbelief. Faith is the only way to pierce the veil and see the kingdom of God.